So in the eternal plan of God, um, before the foundation of this world, he had a plan not only to create mankind, but to redeem mankind. He didn't create man, have the fall happen and say, whoops, I didn't think it was going to go that way. Let's come up with a plan B. Um, He had a plan from before the foundation of this world. In fact, Christ in the book of Revelation is called the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So he was slain in the eyes of God when God created this whole world. So he, he, remember, God is not uh, stuck in time. He exists before we began, and he's already existing after we die, He and, and, and the eternity in heaven, that is all, God is not bound by time. He is eternal. And so he had a plan, again, from before the foundation of the world, that we would be redeemed if we call on Christ. And one of the parts of this plan that Paul has described to us is the is is um, <clears throat> in in the letter of the to the Ephesians here is a is a new destination. If you remember, if we go look back in chapter one, verse five, he had a new destination for us, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. So he had a new place for us, a new destination, and that new destination was to be the adopted children of God, that we would become children of God because of Christ's redemptive work. He would purchase us, and that would make us part of God's immediate family. Um, In fact, um, later in chapter 1, down in verse 11, it says that that... um, predestination, that adoption, gave us access to an inheritance, right? It says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That's really a staggering reality, that he would have a plan to save sinners, those who reject him, he would save them, and it would be amazing that we would have any claim on an inheritance, any, any, any claim on anything except for guilt and judgment and punishment, that, that, there were, that, that we could actually claim something outside of that, anything good, and that we would be called the actual children of God. Um, it's kind of an amazing and staggering reality. Romans 8, that chapter, makes clear that this relationship, um, is, it's a new uh, relationship that connects us to God through his spirit. I'll turn there briefly. It's uh, page 1590 in the Pew Bible, but Romans eight fourteen is where I'm going to go. <clears throat> Romans eight fourteen, and just read down to verse 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be also glorified together. So you can see the connection there. We are sons of God. It's We are led, the way you determine that or, or you see that that is true is that we are led by the spirit of God. And it's a spirit of adoption that this, this whole 
aspect of being brought into the family of God is, is related to a work of the Holy Spirit. And then you get to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ, joint heir with the one eternal Son of God, which is an amazing and staggering reality. Back to Ephesians. Um, if Ephesians 1.5, where we started, it's if it says there, oops, too far. Ephesians 1.5 says, uh, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. So if that Ephesians 1.5 introduces us to the concept of becoming children. We see more details now in our text today in Ephesians 5.1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. So you, you can keep the connection between those two verses straight. 1.5 and 5.1, right? They're just two numbers. Um, so there is a connection between um, now this walk, which we'll get to in a minute. So you can. Um, so much of our examination in chapter four has focused on the church. Um, what activities would be beneficial to it? What would be detrimental to it? Uh, we're supposed to stop putting on this rotten, ugly, old garment out of the closet. We are to, which would be called the old man. We're to put on the new man, which verse twenty three tells us um, <clears throat> uh, that is um, uh, no verse twenty four. Sorry, tells us it's created in righteousness and true holiness. That is the new man. And in verses up in the past couple of weeks, the, the verses twenty five down to verse thirty, there's been a contrast of what we put off versus what we put on. Right, beginning in verse twenty five, we stop lying. Start speaking truth. Verse 30, stop sinning in your anger. Start being angry at the right things at the right time for the right amount of time. Continue. Verse 28, stop stealing. Start working. Uh, Verse 29, stop tearing down in your speech. Start building up in your speech. So there's these things to put off and things to put on. And so this... This is ways that characterize a new position we have been brought into. It's an amazing position to be adopted by the God of the universe into his family. It's an honored position. Imagine being a child on the streets, having committed crimes without any hope of making anything of your life. A wealthy king comes down the street on a carriage and reaches out to you saying that he has adopted you into his family. You're to enjoy the insane inheritance as the king's very own son. The day comes when you are called to arrive at the king's palace and present yourself to him at the royal court. You know, what thoughts are going to be going through your head? Of course, you're likely to be very, very, very thankful, and you should be. Um, but you're probably curious about what the king wants you to do. In fact, he has a very important assignment for you. You are to tell the world about him, how mighty and wonderful and gracious he is. You are to, to, to seek to demonstrate to the world that he is worthy of being the ruler of people's lives rather than the evil Lord who governs the world. So a question then becomes, well, how would you dress if you were going to go meet him? How would you conduct yourself as his ambassador? <clears throat> and so our question today is similar. Is, is there any family resemblance uh, to the father who has adopted us? Um, And that's what Paul is going to discuss as we make this transition from the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5. And he's going to argue that we should look like God. 
that there should be a family resemblance? And that's our question that we're really after today. Is there a family resemblance? So, so we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we'll go back into chapter 4 and then go forward, uh, because we're going to start with the, the idea of building a family resemblance, building a family resemblance. So in verse 1, we have the call, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. And this is really the core verse in this section for the family resemblance. The word translated followers um, is frequently, um, in other uh, translations, it'll, the, the word imitators will be used. Um, it's a Greek word uh, whose core gives us the English word mime or mimic. Um, so you know a mime or a mimic. Well, it's a mimic's probably easier, right? You mimic, you copy, you, you do the same as someone else. Um, we are to be a mimicker of God and as his child. Um, we should look like dad. Um, <clears throat> uh, and the verb uh, to mimic, or in this case, to be a follower, um, <clears throat> is uh, um, in the present imperative. So this means that it's a continuing action. We're not to just do it once. We're to always be seeking to mimic um, our Heavenly Father. We don't do it for an hour. We don't do it for a day. But we seek to do it for a lifetime. Or at least a lifetime after he calls us to be his children. Now, Paul has given us a tremendous example in this regard. Um, in fact, he believed that he himself had been a successful imitator of God and his son, to the point where he asked his followers or his those that would be reading what he wrote uh, to mimic him as he mimicked God. So 1 Corinthians 4.16 tells us, this is Paul writing, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. You say, whoa, well, uh, that, is that taking the spotlight off of God or off of Christ? Well, in the same letter, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So he recognized that he was a follower of Christ and he believed that he was carrying out that duty faithfully. And so he asked the readers to, if you were going to mimic God, mimicking me would be like the same thing because I am doing the things that um, would you know, characterize a child of God. But you might ask then just a natural question, well, how? How do I imitate God? Um, how do we know what God looks like or what, what, what a walk that would be pleasing to God looks like? Uh, in fact, John 8, 118 says that we haven't, we, we can't see God. I'll read it. John 118 says, no man hath seen God at any time. So you're like, uh-oh, how am I going to mimic something I haven't seen? This rest, the second half of that verse will give us the clue, though. So I'll read it again. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So Jesus Christ is God declared to us in human form. It's like God's uh, declaration of who he is to us in a, hum in a human form because God himself, God the Father, is a spirit. So now we have a clue as to what we might imitate. It's hard for us to imitate a spirit when we are a natural and we are a flesh, you know, physical person. Um, we do have a spiritual element and we'll get to that. But if you want to look know more about God and imitating him, we need to look 
no further than his eternal son. Why? Well, Hebrews 1.3 tells us, talking about Jesus, who, being the brightness of his or God's glory and the express image of his person, Christ is the exact representation of God. In fact, he is so much a representation of God that he is God. Um, John chapter 1 um, tells us that Christ is God. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was God, and the Word was with God. So God, the Word, and, and then in verse 14, it tells us that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so we know that the Word is Christ, and then we know that the Word is God. So, this is how we can have, an, have access into knowing um, who God is. So by beholding more of Christ, we can become more like God. The Bible even tells us that's how we do it. We do it by seeing him. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us this. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So I'll just sit Slow down on that for a minute. So open face, beholding as in a glass, like in a mirror. Um, if we're seeing the glory of the Lord in a mirror, if we see that as we look out and it, we look back to ourselves, we are, as we see the glory of Christ, we are changed into that same image. The more we recognize the glory of Christ, the more we can look like the glory of Christ. And so how do we behold the glory of of the Lord, such that we will look more like it. Where can we learn more about Christ, right? This is not the day of the disciples. We can't go see him. Um, he is not physically here. Well, here's what the apostle John tells us at the end of his gospel in John 20. At the very end, or towards the end of his writing, he says this, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The word of God gives us a picture of the Son of God so that we can be changed to be more like God. Christ, Jesus Christ is the pattern we are to mimic and we learn about him in the Bible. We don't learn about him in the world around us. We can learn about him through other Christians who demonstrate his attributes by seeking to be more like him. But the way they learned how to do that is through the word of God. So we ultimately need the word of God to help us, which is exactly what we're going to do now, right? So we've been in chapter five and verse one of Ephesians. It says, be therefore followers or imitators of God as dear children. Well, what does that look like? Paul is going to tell us that. And so let's back up to verse 31 of chapter 4 with a final call to purge. So I'm going to read verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So before he gives us the traits to imitate, Paul is going to take one last swipe at the old man. What should we not have a resemblance to? And if you notice in verse um, 31 that the, the kind of the end, at the end of the verse, it kind of gives the, the root character, one of the root characteristics is malice. And all these things, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, put away from you with all malice. There's something, 
that's really the, the ultimate motive behind these things is malice. And uh, malice is a disposition to injure others without cause. And all of the other fruits of that root are aimed at others, right? Uh, bitterness, extreme enmity with, at someone, or, or you know, you're kind of at war with someone in your heart. You could have wrath, which is really violent anger, right? And, and then we have anger. Um, anger, uh, we know what we've been, we've talked about anger already, but inner deep resentment, seething within, clamor, shout, like it, it boils over. There's loud noise. That's a, you're, you're making a racket because of, uh, at someone because of your anger or your malice. And then evil speaking is actually the Greek word blasphemia. So we know where we get blaspheme from. Um, it's, to, it's to blaspheme. It's to slander someone, uh, which is another word that can be used for that. So to, to tear someone down with speech, just uh, um, as we talked to, about uh, not, you know, earlier back in verse 29. So all these things have no place in a well-functioning body, no place in a body that looks, seeks to look like Jesus. Um, and you say, well, why does Paul even need to mention it? Like, does, does it seem like it's common sense, like that we shouldn't have malice and we shouldn't be angry, we shouldn't um, be wrathful at one another? And interestingly, if you were to read the companion letter in, in Colossians, here's the list in Colossians, he says, Colossians 3.8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. It's like the same exact list. So you say, well, why does he have to hit this? Well, of course, we're all prone to becoming angry, some more than others. Um, and, it, and this is with other people. I'm saying personalities clash. We don't always see eye to eye with someone. We may become easily provoked. You say, why is that? What's the, what's the, the is, it's not just, is, is malice the only root? What are these other, what's a root of, of being angry with someone else? And ultimately that root um, is frequently pride. Anger when our pride is provoked. And you say, well, can, is there... Let me see an example of that. Well, you can see an example of that at the very beginning with Cain and Abel. I'm just going to read two verses when um, Cain kills his brother Abel in the first murder in uh, the Bible, where in Genesis 4, 8, and 9, it says, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? So, and I'm not going to get into, we could go into why Cain kills his brother. But that's, not, that's not my goal here. My goal is his response to God here. I mean, there's, you don't have a lot of people to choose from at the earth at this point. Um, so where'd your brother go? Like, what happened to Abel? And Cain's like, I don't know. He lies. So he lies to God. Am I my brother's keeper? I can sense an anger back to God. Why are you asking me that? You know, leave me alone. Um, and uh, ultimately, it gets all the way back to his original reason, which, which you know, there's a difference in what they brought in terms of their sacrifice to God. 
But he's, he, he is a proud man who is being called out for something wrong he did. And he just deflects, says, I don't, I don't know where my brother is. I'm going to lie. I'm going to lie to the all-seeing God of the universe and say, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to know where he is? Even though he had been the one to kill his brother. So um, beyond this, God takes a heart that is like this, that's filled with malice, hatred, unprovoked anger very seriously. In fact, um, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And I actually don't have the... Don't have the uh, page number in my notes here for the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> These are the words of Jesus Christ, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So that is... A commandment, right? One of the Ten Commandments. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And so Christ moves past the act of killing to the heart behind killing which is a heart of anger, a heart of malice, a heart of wrath. And so he takes it seriously. You need to be, don't just think because you haven't killed anybody that you get off the hook here, that, that you, have, you have not done any sin that's worthy of judgment. Um, and in this case, he places anger in the same category as murder. And so uh, we need to take it seriously. So, we've, uh, if we flip back now to Ephesians 5, or the end of Ephesians 4, actually. These are things that we are to put off. So, what are we to put on in place of pride? So, let's go to verse 32, and we're going to break it into the different sections of the uh, sentence and um, gather what it is that we are to put on. Remember, we are seeking to mimic God. We don't mimic God by being angry in a wrong way. We don't mimic God by being wrathful, um, by uh, evil speaking of others. Um, So how do we be like God? Ephesians 4.32, first phrase, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. Kind and tender-hearted. Okay. Well, what does kindness require? Well, I think it's exactly the opposite of the pride we just discussed. Kindness requires humility. Now, certain, or at least biblical kindness does. If you're simply being kind to someone so that they will be kind to you, that is not demonstrating biblical kindness. That's not the root of what you're seeking or the fruit that you're seeking for. Um, when being kind. Webster's de- definition for uh, tender-hearted is this very susceptible of the softer passions of love, pity, or kindness. Very susceptible. Like you're easily, you easily become loving, pitiful, you know, pitying, and kind. In fact, 1 Peter 3.8 translates that uh, word tender-hearted as be pitiful. Um, and so 
uh, it should spring from the depths of you. It should come from your heart that you would be susceptible not to wrath and to anger and to clamor, but to love, to pity, or to kindness. In fact, the changing of a heart from one type to another is really pictured in the Bible as what salvation is. Um, In fact, it is pictured that before salvation, we have a heart of stone and that God will take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I'll read that. It's in the book of Ezekiel 36 um, in verse 25. It says, then this is talking, this is what we would call the new covenant. Um, It is uh, a picture which eventually we as Gentiles become a part of, but originally is given to the people of the children of Israel. Um, And so I'll just read it here. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them." And so it's a picture of salvation. And you see, it's not like God does a little renovation. He doesn't like, well, I polish off the, your stony heart and it looks a little better. You know, I take it out and I put a new one in, a new, a new heart and a new spirit. And so there are new motives, new, new reasons for doing things. We do not love Christ and desire to be like him with a stony heart. <clears throat> a stony heart may say, well... Christ did some good things and he seemed like a good teacher, but we don't submit to him as Lord and want to our lives to be one like him and two, show others how he is a great uh, uh, treasure to behold um, unless our heart has been changed. And so, and that is a work of God. Now, you may argue, you say, well, what about, can't unsaved people be kind? That doesn't seem... Uh, correct. It says it does not mean that unsaved people cannot be kind or tender-hearted. That that is is not the case, and they frequently are. Say to their family, to their friends. Not always, but but they certainly can be. But does it not seem plausible that a heart that it, that is at enmity with God, a stony heart, which is true of every unconverted person, may that may it be? more likely that that person would be more apt into falling into enmity with other people if you've already got a stony heart towards God to begin with. And the other thing is that while someone in this world could be kind to friends, to family, to strangers, absolutely, they can do that. What is their motive for doing so? Is their motive to bring glory to God? And if it is not the motive to bring glory to God, then if you think back to our Bible study, they're not fulfilling the purpose for why they were created. We are created to bring glory to God, Isaiah 43, 7. That is a reason to be here. And we will learn in our next Bible study that the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So everyone originally, before God does a work in them, Whatever their actions are, they're not doing it for the glory of God. And so they're not fulfilling their purpose that he's given them. Now, Paul, back on the topic of kindness here, is consistent that he calls others, he calls people to be kind um, throughout his uh, uh, writings, his epistles. 
We've actually just been through this in Romans, Romans 12, 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. All right, so be kindly affectioned. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, which talks about the topic of love or charity. Uh, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Love is kind, essentially, is what it's saying. So to mimic God, we are called to be kind and tenderhearted. Why? Because God is kind and tenderhearted. Psalm 117, um, it says, uh, this is the whole psalm. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. Why? For his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. We praise him for his kindness. The Bible calls us to, to recognize the kindness of God. And so one way to mimic him is our own kindness. Let's continue in verse 32 now back in Ephesians 4. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So our second trait to mimic is forgiveness, being willing to forgive. Now, differently than kindness, we are given an example of God's forgiveness to us. So we're all. So this time we're not. We could search. We we found that God was indeed kind. We we did. We we could look in Scripture um, and recognize the kindness of God. But here it actually tells us forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So we are told we need to mimic God. Why? He is a forgiver of man. He responds to our prayers in forgiveness. Uh, uh, with forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us, if, as, as a believer, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is a forgiving God. We ask for him to forgive, and he forgives. But God cannot simply forgive us for our sins and let us go into heaven without, and, and, that, and that be it. There has to be a basis for the forgiveness It would not be consistent with his characteristics of justice, righteousness, and holiness to forgive just just because he wanted to. And that's why in verse 32, it says, God has forgiven us for Christ's sake. It is only because of Christ's work of substitution where he took our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be the made the righteousness of God in him. So Christ was made sin for us as believers. 1 John 2, 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his, Christ's, name's sake. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses? Okay, so he forgave all trespasses. Well, how did he do that? Like, how, how can he make that happen? He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. So saying, you know, all these things that were condemning you because of your sin, he's blotted them out. How? Uh, which was, uh, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Our Sins are nailed to the cross of Christ such that 
forgiveness becomes possible. God can say, I'm going to forgive you and the sins I'm going to forgive. Why? How can I do that? Because they have been paid for. They have already been paid for on the cross of Calvary. They've been nailed to Christ's cross. So God can forgive us. Now, more than that, so it's even more than that. It's more than God can just now forgive us because Christ purchased more than just our forgiveness. He purchased our ability to, be, to have a forgiving spirit. The forgiveness purchased by Christ makes a forgiving spirit possible in the heart of a believer. God did not just save us to put us in heaven. He saved us to change our hearts so that we can be like his son for the rest of our lives here and ultimately more so when we go to be with him. How do we know this? How, how do we know that it's more than just forgiveness? Well, Christ expected his disciples to be have a forgiving spirit. This is uh, uh, Matthew 18 and verse 21. Peter came to Jesus, came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? And so Peter's coming and saying, yeah, it's probably good. I should probably be forgiving, you know, seven times. That's probably pretty good, right? And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. And you say, probably just means you should always be willing to forgive him. And you say, well, why is that? Well, wouldn't it be awful? Wouldn't it be an awful life as, a, as an individual in this world who had X number of sins forgiven by Jesus, but then no more than that. And then you're always wondering. It's what I wondered when I was a kid. Um, how much sin is too much sin? In fact, there are, you know, I've told the kids, no, I've told, I've told all of you this before. There was on my paper route when I was a kid, there was a bumper sticker on a car I, would, I went by um, every day that, would, that said, uh, how much sin can I get away with and still go to heaven? And that's exactly what I wasn't sure about. I'm like, well, there seems like there's X amount. And once you're above that, you're doomed. And Jesus, what he's pointing out to Peter is you should always be willing to forgive. Why? Because in, in our relationship with God, all of our sins have been paid for. If we have put our faith and trust in Christ for our salvation and, and said, Lord, I believe that promise, then they are all paid for. When we pray to God for forgiveness, there is um, um, an uh, assumption that we are going to treat others with the same spirit. Because without that, our forgiveness is in jeopardy. This is, this is how Christ taught us to pray, right? In the middle of the Lord's Prayer. And for, this is Matthew six twelve, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You say, okay, so I need to forgive as, and forgive others as I've been forgiven. But it continues. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That does not mean that we get to go around and so, if somebody can't pick that verse out of Scripture, say, you know what? All I have to do is forgive people and I'll go to heaven. The only reason you're going to want to the only reason you're going to be able to have a forgiving spirit in a way that would please God is because your heart has been changed. It's an evidence. It's a fruit of your salvation. Paul commands um, forgiveness in the companion letter to the Colossians, Colossians 3.13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. 
if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. It's the exact same thing. Forgive, why? Christ forgave you. We forgive because we are forgiven. We don't hold grudges. A lack of forgiveness can drive a wedge into the body of Christ, and we must not allow its destructive effects to take hold. So we've seen uh, kindness. We've seen forgiveness. And the third trait we're going to look at this morning is love. And that is ahead now. Move ahead to chapter 5 and verse 2. And walk in love. As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So the final characteristics we're going to review is love. And again, just like forgiveness, we're told to mimic God who has given us the supreme example of love in his son, right? Walk in love as Christ has also or also hath loved us. And it doesn't just say love Christ or love, be loving because Christ was loving. It shows us how he was loving given himself for us. The Bible tells us that giving of one's life for another is the greatest demonstration of love. John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Christ did, given himself for us. So that's how forgiveness was purchased, through Christ's death, through the offer of himself as the sacrifice. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, for Christ, hath, for Christ also hath suffered, has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, him for us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He suffered, just like we were talking about before. He made forgiveness possible. He gave himself for us. He suffered for our sins. We call that substitutionary atonement. <clears throat> Now, love is a frequent command we see from Christ to his disciples. Uh, John talks about multiple times, and I'll just read a couple of them. John 13, 34, this is Christ's words. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And there's a consistent theme, so keep that in your head. Love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. So Christ's pretty straightforward. There's no, I don't think there's just any surprise. He wants us to love one another as he loved us. But we're not just, a, in, back in our verse in Ephesians, in, in Ephesians 5, 2, it's, it's not just loving, but walk in love. So not only should we do loving things, our lives should be characterized by love. Remember, walk is like your daily, your daily living. And again, it's a present imperative verb. It's, we should, as, as walking kind of sounds like, you're going to keep doing it. You're not going to just take a step. You're going to walk. <clears throat> so what does this look like? Well, first, let's look, think about the idea of laying down your life for someone else. What, so what does that tell us about love? So a life that's constantly willing to lay down itself for others is, cannot be proud. Um, in fact, if you were a proud person, you might think that others should be laying down their lives for you. Huh. 
<laughs> a life that's willing to lay down itself for others is not easily offended. Right? If you're offended easily, then like you're the, the ultimate offense, like getting yourself killed is is might be offensive to a lot of people, um, as it probably should be. But you're probably not easily offended um, if you're willing to lay your life down for others. A life that's constantly willing to lay itself down has a desire to see others' lives preserved. That's why you're doing it. And that's the example Christ gave us. If Romans 5, 6 tells us, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ did not die for us because we were a bunch of deserving people. He died for us because we, the, because we, the ungodly, might live. He did it to see others' lives preserved. Would we consider dying for someone so that they might live? In fact, remember Paul in Romans telling us not only would he be willing to die for his kinsmen, the, um, the other Jews, He'd be willing to suffer eternal torment for them if they would come to Christ. Finally, a life that is constantly willing to lay itself down for others does not find its ultimate satisfaction in the things of this life. If your life, if, if your own life, what you had right now is the thing you valued the most, more than anything, you wouldn't lay it down. <laughs> it's the most, most valuable thing. But if you have an eternity secured in heaven to spend time enjoying God and all of his infinite attributes, perhaps there would be less concern about what happened to you in one day as part of your temporary life in this world. You would, there would be a different balance. <clears throat> Again, in, in Ephesians 5.2, it says that the sacrifice that Christ made of himself so that we might live was a sweet-smelling savor. That type of sacrifice smelled good to God, even though it was his son being brutally killed. That sin was done to him. God, tells the, God the Father tells us that he was well pleased with his son. Now, let's move beyond and say, well, are Christians are supposed to all be out there flinging themselves in front of buses and killing, you know, that, that's not the Christian life, necessarily. That God may not call everyone to that. So, is that the only way we can walk in love? And one way to think about Christ's example here, that he loved us by giving himself for us, is that love cost him. And here's what commentator Harold Honer said of these, this verse, Christ's love cost him his life. Should our love be without cost? A walk of love is a walk that costs us. It is self-sacrifice. So love in the daily life of a Christian may not cost us our lives. It may, it may not, but it will cost us something. The body, remember the church pictured as a body, is not made up of parts that are all determined to have it their way at the expense of all the others. That would be terrible if that was happening in our own bodies. We'd be, stuff would be, it wouldn't be good. Um, <clears throat> we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. Uh, Christ's body, the church, would be best sustained by each member working for the betterment of others, willing to sacrifice a bit of itself to benefit another and therefore strengthen the entire body. So close with just a word of application, exhortation. Um, Paul exhorts Christians in this letter to be kind 
to demonstrate forgiveness, to act in love. And we're to do that out of our desire to mimic our God. Why? Because we've been adopted as his children. In mimicking him, we want to throw away some of our past characteristics that may have been part of our lives. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, all of those things we saw at the end of chapter 4. Remember, from the very creation of mankind, we are, as we actually did in our Bible study, we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So we are to demonstrate, we are to bear his image. And Christ has purchased our ability to do what God had originally designed us to do. To bear the image of God is to demonstrate to the world what God is like. Again, we said we're created for his glory. For I have created him, man, for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Isaiah 43, 7. So to demonstrate the glory of God back to him. And now Paul has shown us specific characteristics that will make our image look more like him. So God is helping us work towards our ulti- his ultimate design for us. And so that requires us to relinquish control of our own fleshly desires, to humble ourselves before God and recognize the, more, the infinitely more valuable and joy-producing state of bearing the, the image of God than satisfying our flesh and doing that to a lost and dying world. Showing them something that is valuable, most valuable. And the more that we work on this, the more of God that we will see in one another. And the more joy that that will produce in our lives. True joy, lasting joy, real, full joy. It would be a wonderful thing in our hearts to enjoy God so much that we want to see him everywhere. Not just in our lives demonstrated to others, but in their lives demonstrated back to us. So that we would share it, we'd live it, share it such that it would reflect back. So let's close in prayer.